I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour of fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. Merry Christmas. I'm Chris Pipkin, and I've written a bizarre Christmas play about the Inklings. If you haven't listened to the first part, go back and do that. It's not very long. The second part finds me, and the ghost of Charles Williams, listening in to a Yuletide conversation between Tolkien and Jack and Warney Lewis. Enjoy. Travel forward 10 years, this time to Oxford in 1933. The Lewis brothers are having a drink together in the final day of Nicholas term, waiting for an older Tolkien to join them. So you said the Lewis brothers is in C.S. Lewis and Warning? Of course, there they are. On the whole, I agree, Jax, but perhaps those who say that the Allies were too severe with the Germans have a point. They have been hard done by, I suppose. But that is far too patronizing, Warning, as though poverty deprived the people of moral agency. We owe the Germans our prayers, as well as our refusal to bow to this little fool who is taking advantage of their being hard done by. Nothing can excuse the iniquity of Hitler's persecution of the Jews, or of the absurdity of his theoretical position. You saw what he said the other week. The Jews have made no contribution to human culture, and in crushing them, I am doing the will of the Lord. That blaspheming tyrant has just fixed his absurdity for all to see in a single sentence. Thing has the whole idea of the will of the Lord is exactly what the world owes to the Jews. He's as contemptible for his stupidity as he is detestable for his cruelty. And our own government offers no rebuke to this little demagogue. It's a scandal. I'll drink to that. Ah, here he is, author of the century. <laughs> the things you Lewises will say to get a chapter by you a pint. Does it come in pints? Well, if you say so. But come now, Tollers. Jack has been telling me about this hobbit of yours. And now I've heard part of your Turin for myself. You really must finish both, you know. Turin will one day be finished. The hobbit has been silly fun, really written mainly for my children. And for me. Hello, Tollers. How are you getting on with those exams? Or has your college assigned you amanuenses to mark papers for you so you can devote all your time to philology? Exams? Dreadful as always. And no, no, no amanuenses, unless you count Christopher and Priscilla, who have certainly marked a paper or two in their time. How old are they now? Oh, Christopher is nine and Priscilla is four. The older two, John and Michael, are coming back from school tomorrow. I always forget what a house fill you have. It's a wonder you write anything. Well, Warney, such is the cost of non-bachelorhood. We drink as we brew, you know. Oh, secunda pastorum. Very seasonal of you, Jack. I'm afraid I'm lost. The second shepherd's play, one of the medieval plays about the Christmas shepherds, begins with three very English shepherds complaining about 15th century political evils, like the practice of forcing commoners off lands they used to be allowed to work. Enclosure was called. After they complain, a thief named Mock steals one of the sheep. Well, they're suspicious and they follow him home, but he has his wife to put the sheep in a cradle to throw them off and then makes them feel guilty for barging in when she's just been delivered of a child. They are about to leave, remember their manners, and go to present the baby with a gift, at which point they find out they've been fooled and toss Mock about in a blanket to punish him. All fun so far as borderline blasphemous. But it's at that point 
that angels appear and tell the shepherds about another birth in Bethlehem. So the three of them travel across the stage and suddenly they're singing to the Christ child and the Blessed Virgin Mary and giving them gifts. Time travel without a machine, your favorite kind of time travel, I believe, Tullers. Oh, yes, but more than time travel, a collapse of time. The 15th century shepherds and their nonsense and politics are all given to Christ, who in the Eucharist transcends all time, offering himself to all. Those who thought the Middle Ages incapable of such subtlety would dismiss it as a blasphemous parody with an anachronistic, pious ending tackled all. Is that what you would say, Jax? I think not. I'm sure some in the audience would have mainly enjoyed the part about politics and the blasphemy and ignored the ending, just as some would now, but Pollard seems correct. There is room to enjoy those things and then have it all be well transfigured or sanctified by the fact of Christ's birth and the grace of his revelation, even to such low fellows as ourselves. So beginning with politics, a protest doesn't make it bad art, doesn't date it. It hallows the protest of the politics by taking it up into literary farce, which is then taken up into Christ. The fully Dickens lesson done as much with Christmas Carol. Instead, he begins on a political note, satirizing the rich, and then what? Scrooge has a change of heart because in his time travels, he realizes that the poor are pitiable and that no one will love him when he's gone. Lip service to Christ is paid, but Christmas means this. Christmas means that. Christmas means Christmas. It's cheery but blandly pious. And without Christ to be seen. What? A Christmas carol? A humbug, Jack? I don't want to complain of it because of all of this obvious Xmas humbuggery must deal with now. Already, most shops are selling their so-called Christmas cards, waving the absurdity of celebrating nativity at all if you don't believe in the incarnation. What in heaven's name is the idea of everyone sending everyone else pictures of, of stagecoaches, fairies, flowers, dogs, foxes, and other niceties? the same vagueness about Christmas that Dickens invented. Right. Christmas without the Christ or the Mass. I think the real holiday might be a trifle too Roman for your average Englishman in Dickens's day and in our own. Oh, come now, Tallers. Obviously the Puritans outlawed, but it was celebrated with gusto by Protestant England before and after Cromwell. And no one was in any doubt what it all meant until the Victorians revived it and the Americans degraded it. Well, if Jax had to write a political rant for the beginning of a Christmas play, I think I have a feeling what it would be. Well, the play, at any rate, is the shape of the mass. The political rant is our prayers, our temporal concerns, and when Christ is elevated, we are brought into union with each other and with him. It's also the shape of the account in Luke upon which every true Christmas narrative is based. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. It's heavy with local and national politics and particular details. Serenius, governor of Syria, as is obscure to us as the 15th century enclosure or Victorian workhouses. Yet by the end, we have a universal peace that touches even that. Not a solution to the problems, but a, a setting of the problem in perspective. As the angels proclaim both glory to God in the high heaven and peace to men on earth, and the shepherds and the blessed virgin respond to Christ, and we, following them, respond as well. It all somehow works, provided the angels, the Blessed Virgin, and our Lord appear in some way. He is eternal God, voluntarily subjecting himself to time and death, and he uniquely transcends and conquers both. In a Christmas carol, by contrast, the political problem is acute, along with the vice that causes it. But the one who can set the political problems in perspective after entering time 
He makes no appearance. But he does appear in Dickens, Jack, for the least of these brothers of mine. Can, can they hear you, Charles Williams? Did anyone hear that? It may have been my stomach, Jax. Well, in that case, let him roar again. Let's toddle around to Maudlin for supper. A capital idea. Now, Tolkien, are you of my brother's absurd opinion that Wuthering Heights doesn't really qualify as a book? I haven't given it much thought, but probably, though it's not a hill I should like to die on. You mean a height you'd die on? Well, whether it would or not, draw your sword. I think it'd fine. I'm not sure I understand what they're driving at. So, Christ entered time. Exactly, and as Virgil foresaw, the nature of time itself changed. Virgil was right, just about the wrong person. The incarnation means Messiah's entered time at once, transcending it and allowing us to transcend it, effectively defeating it on our behalf. But he also hallowed and raised what he defeated. Time becomes not mere succession of moments and illusion, but the path of real progress. That seems unlikely, though. I mean, Lewis is talking about the lead-up to the Holocaust. That isn't progress at all. It seems to me that throughout this conversation, they mostly ignored the very troubling world events that Lewis mentions at the beginning. I think they're almost relieved to go from that to talking about literature and religion. I thought you were complaining earlier that people don't take learning and literature seriously. Yes, but this was the beginning of all kinds of horrendous evils. As are all moments. Shall there be evil in the city and I, the Lord, have not caused it? And again, <laughs> poetry either matters, either works to redeem us and our time, or it doesn't. The world becomes an even darker place if we refuse such conversation because others are denied it. We fast, though. We do. But you know as well as I that we fast not in reverence for the tragedies of the world or in guilt over happiness, but for devotion and petition. Speaking, though, of fasting, let us journey a decade on to the beginning of Hillary term, January 1944. The Christmas holidays have all but ended, but they have brought further troubles rather than any sense of relief. Everyone in England is fasting, both food and light, despite the Christmas feast. Let us join Jack and Tolkien as they make their way from Lewis's rooms at Maudlin to the Mitre Inn. Well, at this point, Priscilla is humoring me, I think. The Father Christmas letters probably should have been retired five years ago. I'm writing them more for myself than anything else. Nostalgia, perhaps, for happier, more certain times. You must let me see them sometime. They sound marvelous, just my sort of thing. Oh, I think I should be embarrassed to show them to grown-ups. She said about the Hobbit, and you said yourself that children are more demanding audience. Well, they are more demanding than most grown-ups, because most grown-ups refuse to take a children's tale seriously. They are not more demanding than you. Or you, I think. It's clear to me that this third ransom tale is not for you. Well, I think it could be very good, but I'm not convinced by it. Right-ish, I believe, were your words. It is as yet outside my sympathy. But it is good to see you again, Jack. It's been weeks. <laughs> yes, my life, as you know, has been a succession of urgent duties. Constant letter writing, RAF talks, BBC broadcasts. And my own mother continues to feel quite poorly. I was nearly unable to meet tonight. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I am glad to have 1943 behind us. One of the unexpected blessings of this war has been the ability to really see the stars at night. I find breathing during a hard frost. Do you suppose these streetlights function anymore? I hope not. I've made my opinions fairly clear about these mass-produced electric lampposts. The gas ones were bad enough. Would you have preferred phosphorescent trees? Mm, wouldn't you? Wouldn't anyone? Street lamps seem a pale mockery of that myth. The silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. Ah, oh, hello, Charles. 
wasn't even certain that was you. I say, I had hoped you'd be joining us tonight at the Mitre, and here you are, suddenly, just as I was wondering what you'd say to Tollers. Time and times, you know, one really must admire the clockwork of the omnipotence. No, but one creates clockwork precisely one because one is not omnipotent. The omnipotence creates the trees, the stars. Well, let's have it, Charles, though I prefer the stars. I confess a fondness for streetlights myself. They are not, I suspect, incompatible with myth. Do you think them ugly and soul-destroying? No, beacons of glory, beacons of victory when we light them again. Not only here, but in all places. When they again blaze forth, a feast of light will follow this interminable advent. Spring and Christmas will crack long winter's ice, and the lion and the blood will roar through the mouth of creation as the lions roar that stand in the Byzantine glory. <laughs> Told you, Tallers. Well, that's all for now. In the third and final part of An Inkling's Christmas Carol, this conversation between Tolkien, Lewis, and Williams will continue, and their stargazing will lead to a most unusual Christmas adventure. Look for it to post sometime next week, which is, I'll remind you, still part of the Christmas season, and therefore still arriving neither late nor early, but exactly when it means to. I'd like to thank Serena Higgins for reading the part of Charles Williams and Charles Williams' Ghost, and for sharing her talented author's circle with me. Thanks to Ed Powell for playing C.S. Lewis and to Joe Hoffman for once again being Tolkien. Please remember that we are not actors and this was essentially a table reading rather than anything we rehearsed. If you enjoyed it, feel free to reach out to me at inklingsvarietyhour at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a very Merry Christmas. But all the clocks in the city began to whir and chime. Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time.